I asked Justin to sing that last hymn because it really gets at the heart of what we're going to be talking about. The ironic thing about that hymn, it was written by Samuel Stone, who was an Episcopalian priest in England back in the 1800s, and his bishop, so the, the man who had spiritual authority over him, wrote a book attacking the truthfulness of Scripture and basically mocking what Christians have always believed about the Scriptures. And Samuel Stone was quite distressed, not only that this bishop had written this book, but that nobody disciplined him for heresy. What uh, An article I read recently, the gateway heresy. You know, we talk about gateway drugs, denying the truthfulness of the scriptures, the gateway heresy. Once you open that doorway, who knows um, what other heresies will multiply behind it. Um, so he wrote actually a series of hymns, Samuel Stone did, on the tenets of the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And so this one, you can tell, is written really in anguish for the fact that there are people, even in the church, even serving as pastors and bishops, who deny the reality and the truthfulness of God's word. Right? But here's the great irony about this hymn. This hymn gets used a lot in one particular kind of situation. It gets used a lot when Christians who believe very different things, maybe some who aren't even Christians but like to think they are, but they deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They deny that he really died on a cross. They deny that, um, that he really is the Son of God. There's all kinds of people that deny all kinds of fundamental things and yet still call themselves Christians and still get ordained and still preach in churches. You know this, right? And, um, and so these folks will get together, have these big ecumenical gatherings, and sing this hymn. But, of course, they have to leave out verse 3 and verse 4. People sing this hymn all the time about how the church's one foundation is Jesus, but they leave out the verses that are the point of the hymn, which is the church crying out in the midst of this situation in which we find ourselves longing for Christ to set things right, mourning over the fact, over the fact that there are just brokenness and even, as it says, false sons in her pale, right? But in spite of that, against foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. It's a powerful hymn, but it's a sobering hymn. So we often don't like to think about those kinds of things when we gather in Christian settings. We want to pretend that everybody who thinks they're a Christian, of course, must be a Christian and must believe the right things, and, and live for Jesus and all that. But the fact is, it's not true. And the fact is, often in the history of the church, it's been church people have perpetrated some of the most grievous persecution. It was in the days of Jesus this way, and it's been throughout the centuries. One of my uh, favorite stories about this comes from the Scottish... Um, time after the Scottish Reformation, during the time of who they called the Covenanters. 1685, May 2nd, 1685, Margaret Wilson, 18-year-old girl, Margaret McLaughlin, 63-year-old woman, were sentenced to death by drowning. Why? Because they refused to acknowledge that the king was the head of the church. So these two women were sentenced to death because of a disagreement over church government. They were taken out to the beach while the tide was out. 
And the old woman, the 63-year-old woman, was tied to a stake pretty far out. The 18-year-old woman was tied to a stake closer into shore so that she could watch the older woman drown first. And as the tide came in, the old lady's wrestling for breath, trying to keep her head above the water. The soldiers that are around the 18-year-old girl ask her, what do you see? Margaret, what do you see? She says, I see Christ wrestling there. Think ye, she says, that we are sufferers? No, it is Christ in us. He sends none a warfare at their own charges. The old lady swallowed by the water and the tide continues to come in. Then Margaret, the 18-year-old, begins to quote Romans 8 out loud, saying, We are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. The water begins to lap over her head, and she's about dead when the soldiers kind of pull her up out of the water, revive her, and ask her to confess that the king is the head of the church. She refuses, and they thrust her head under the water again. Again, they pull her up, and they revive her. One of her friends who's on the beach, because many of her friends have come out to watch this, screams and pleads with her to take the oath and pray for the king. Margaret prays, Lord, give the king repentance if it be your will. They didn't like that. The captain screams out to her, damned woman, we don't want such prayers. Swear an oath to the king. Instead, Margaret groans, no sinful oaths for me. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. Instead, they thrust her head under the water, and she's drowned. Now, I don't know what the disciples expected. Those that followed Jesus and heard his voice and walked with him. The parable that we're going to look at tonight comes near the very end of his ministry. And it seems to them that the moment they've been waiting for is about to come. And yet, 1,600 years later, 18-year-old girls and 63-year-old women are still being put to death for publicly identifying with Christ. And I could multiply stories. These stories go on even now, all over the world. The parable we're going to look at tonight is about how we are to live in the in-between time from when Christ leaves and comes again. How do we live? What does it mean to follow him in that in-between time? If you got your Bible, look at Luke 19. Now, this is a parable that you may have heard before, but I suspect you've heard it in a different way with a different take than maybe we're going to talk about tonight. I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, everybody that reads the Bible brings a particular cultural context to it, and we assume certain things. This is one of those parables that's often read through the lens of Western capitalism. The problem with that, of course, is it didn't exist at the time Jesus tells this parable. It also doesn't fit with what he says to the servants near the end of the parable. And so we're going to have to wrestle together with what is Jesus getting at in this parable. But let's read it first. (coughs) Sorry, I am kind of losing my voice, aren't I? Okay, so this comes right on the heels uh, at the beginning of chapter 19 that Jesus um, enters Jericho. He's passing through. There's this man, Zacchaeus, right? You know the little Bible song you ever sung about Zacchaeus as a wee little man, you know? Um, Anyway, Zacchaeus gets converted, which is a pretty amazing thing. 
And, um, you know, all the disciples there are probably pretty excited, like tax collectors getting converted. Amazing. Like the kingdom of God is happening. And then in verse 11, it says this, as they heard these things, in other words, the disciples, they're all getting excited about what's going on. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they, meaning the disciples and these people following him, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made, made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a little, in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has produced five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then one, another one came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to them, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. And give it to the one who has the ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. Like, not fair. <laughs> I can hear my kids saying this. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Oh, that's a cheery end to this story, isn't it? Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand why Jesus told this parable and what it means for us. And we pray you'd help us send your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is an interesting parable. There's a, a slightly different version of this parable in, um, in Matthew, but we're looking at the version here in Luke. Um, tonight. And it really is about how to live in the middle of the already and the not yet tension. You get that from the context. Jesus tells this parable, Luke says, specifically to correct a misunderstanding, which is that the kingdom of God is to appear immediately. Now, Jesus, you have to understand, came into a world full of longing and expectations. In particular, many of the Jews were longing for the day that when Messiah would come and what they hoped and longed and believed the Messiah would do is he would drive out the hated Roman occupiers. Jerusalem at this time was occupied by a Roman army. The Jews couldn't do very many of the things they felt they should be able to do without getting permission from the Romans. Okay, They hated it. They hated it. 
And they thought that what the Messiah was going to do was going to drive out the Roman oppressors. At least one of Jesus' disciples, we know, is described as a zealot. The zealots were like guerrilla warfare guys trying to bring about the overthrow of Rome. So we know that even within Jesus' close circle of his 12 disciples, there were some who were revolutionaries and were expecting the revolution to come and thought that force was an appropriate way to bring it about. And this parable comes at the very end of Jesus' life. The very next story in the Gospel of Luke is the triumphal entry. Okay? So we're getting near, we're right here at the final week of Jesus' life. He's about to enter into Jerusalem on this white uh, colt, right? And everybody's going to be, you know, sort of waving the palm branches saying, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And then a week later, he's going to be crucified on a cross. So that's where we are. So they've seen Jesus do a lot of amazing stuff. For three years, he's been ministering publicly. And so not only do they have expectations just growing up in this context, but they've seen Jesus doing all kinds of amazing things. And they think, now, here we are. It's Passover. What a perfect time for the Messiah to publicly take the reins. It's what we're looking for. Jesus is the one And he is going to do it. But Jesus wants to say, no, that's not what's going to happen. And so he tells this parable to correct their expectations, but also to teach them how are they to live? How are they to live with the reality that is coming? So what's the setting of the story? It's actually interesting. Um, He tells this story about a nobleman who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom. You might think, well, what is that all about? But actually, there's two um, particular stories in history, very close to the time when Jesus told this story, that fit very well with what he's saying. Herod the Great, about 40 or 50 years before Jesus told this parable, actually, no, about 40 or 50 BC, so about 70 or 80 years before Jesus told this parable, Herod the Great took a journey to Rome to see if the king would make him King Herod. And then in 4 BC, okay, so right around the time Jesus, um, you know, was born, Herod's son did the same thing, went to Rome, a far country, to see if he could be made king. Now, in one of these situations, Herod the Great, he was successful, and he was made king. In the other situation, Herod Antipas was not made king. Instead, his brother was. Or sorry, Archaeus Archaeus wasn't. He went because Antipas became king. So one journey resulted in the nobleman becoming king, and the other journey didn't, okay? So there's a very kind of realistic story um, that you never knew what was going to happen. And that's the setting you have here, right? So the nobleman is leaving to go receive this kingship. He's very confident that he's going to get it, But everybody in this day and age knew that there was no guarantee. There was no guarantee that when you went off to talk to Rome to see if they would make you king, that that was going to happen. And and recent history showed them one case where it worked, one case where it didn't work. But what this guy does is he gives each of these 10 servants money, a good bit of money, actually, about 100 days wages. So a a good amount of money, right? And it's a free generous gift. But as the story progresses, you find that it's a gift that brings responsibility. 
Actually, all gifts bring responsibility. That's one of the points of the parable. And I guess, you know, as we begin to enter into even thinking about how do we connect to this parable, I think one of the things that makes it even hard for us to enter into the rest of this parable is we tend not to think of what we have as being a result of a gift. And therefore, we think that what we have is ours to do with it what we want. But one of the things that Jesus is wanting to help us see is that what we have, we have as a gift from the king, and it is to be a kingdom resource. He doesn't shy away from expecting us to use it for the good of the kingdom. But here's what's interesting is what he says when he gives them this money. (coughs) The nobleman promises his servants that he will return, that he'll be successful and return as king. And in the meantime, they are to, as the ESV says, engage in business until he returns. Now, Ken Bailey, the guy whose book on the parables I've been using quite a lot, um, makes a big deal about how this word until. Because there's there's a strangeness to this parable. I don't know if it bothered you, but so many people interpret this parable as basically Jesus telling these people, or the nobleman telling these people, you need to make money for me. And yet, when the nobleman comes back, he doesn't say to them, great job, you've been successful and made a lot of money. What he says is, good servant, you've been faithful. Now, understanding this parable, Bailey argues, and I think he's right, you know, is really determined by how you translate this word that some of our translations translate until. It's a Greek phrase, en ho. It usually means, um, well, more literally, it means in which. So engage in business in which. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, Bailey says, you know, you could translate it three different ways. You could translate it until, you could translate it in, in which, or you can translate it as because. And if you translate it as until, then what you have the master saying is, okay, guys, here's some money. You don't have much time because I'm coming back. You better invest it wisely and make the most that you possibly can before I come back. And the problem with that way of translating it is that he doesn't say, good job, glad you made a lot of money. And he doesn't say to the guy who made 10, good job, you made more money for me so you're better. No, he says, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. So um, what Bailey says is the better way to translate it is engage in trade in, a, in which or in a situation in which I am coming back. Or if you translate it because, it ends up meaning the same thing. Engage in trade because I am coming back. So what could that possibly mean? Well, it means this. Um, it means that while I'm gone, you are to engage in business as if I'm coming back. It's talking about a particular way that they're to do business more than just encouraging them to do as much business as they possibly can. Um, Bailey gives an illustration uh, uh, which helped me to understand like what he's trying to get at here. He says, imagine a scene in which the Shah of Iran, do you guys know about the Shah? The Shah of Iran was a you know, brutal dictator who you know, the CIA financed and helped support until we got, you know, he got ousted and then Saddam came, right? <clears throat> or sorry, into the Ayatollah and all these you know, folks. Sorry, mixing up my countries here. I'm going to talk about Iraq in a minute. Um, 
But the Shah of Iran, you know, was, was not a good guy, and he wasn't liked at all by his people, okay? So Bailey says, imagine a scene in which the Shah of Iran is in his last days of power. He summons tens of his, ten of his servants and tells them, hey, I'm going away to take a little vacation. <laughs> I have $5,000 for each of you, and I want you to open shops in downtown Tehran in my name. I want you to put a big sign up that says, the Shah's shoe shop. Be very public and bold about it. Keep in mind that I am coming back. I know I have enemies. I know I have enemies. And they will most likely follow me, try to destroy me, but never fear. I will prevail and return. And so you set up that shop and put up that sign. Now, the thing is, see, in the, in the Middle East, political situations are very volatile. You know, what would make the most sense if you were one of this nobleman's servants is that you would, see, see here's the thing, this, you know that the guy has enemies. I mean, as soon as he leaves, uh, ostensibly maybe to go to Rome, a delegation of his citizens who hate him go to Rome as well to plead their case to say, don't make this guy the king. So that's the context in which this nobleman gives people money and says, do business in my name. Show your allegiance to me while I'm gone, even in the midst of all these enemies who hate me and are trying to destroy me and everything that I'm about. That's, that's what this parable is about. That's what this parable is about. And it's a perfect picture for Jesus to give to these disciples at this stage of his ministry. To say to them, look, I am not about to immediately bring about the fullness of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And there's a lot of people who hate me and want to undo everything that I'm about. So what I want you to do is to take what I've given you and publicly identify yourself with me and, and, and be about my business with the things that I've given you. Oh, I know that there's people that hate me and, you know, are going to try and keep me from coming back and overrule, overturn my kingship. But you, you go ahead and make a public identification with me. See, now what would have made most sense for these servants of the nobleman to do was to bury that money and see who wins. Why would you put all of your eggs in the basket of trusting the nobleman that he really is true to his promise. I mean, after all, there's enemies who hate him. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to sort of just kind of hold off and see who's going to be the victor? Because the last thing you want to do in this day and age in which this parable is told is back the wrong guy. I, I mean, thing, people were not kind to people that backed the wrong guy, right? Pilate and Herod both had members of their own household killed because they were concerned that they might possibly be used in a coup, okay? You didn't want to be on the wrong side of these very volatile power shifts. And yet what Jesus is telling his people to do is you trust my word, you trust my promise, and publicly identify yourself with me even when I'm gone and even in the midst of enemies who want to undo everything that I'm about, right? So really, what these servants do 
with this money, just like what you and I do with the gifts that we've been given, are a matter of kingdom loyalties. And I don't know if we often think of it in those big terms. I think we often live very disconnected lives. I think it's one of the the ways the postmodern world we live in squeezes us into being different people in different situations. We have, you know, for this, in this situation, we have to be the good student. And in this situation, we have to be this person and be this person. We're always even like trying on different roles and trying to be whatever we need to be in those roles, right? And it's very difficult, I think, for people to connect the dots and, and to think in terms of how I spend my money, for instance, is expressing a kingdom loyalty. It's expressing whether I'm loyal to the kingdom of God or whether I'm trying to build my own kingdom. How I spend my time is an expression of a kingdom loyalty. It's, it's not just an insignificant thing. Are we publicly identifying with Jesus in the way we spend our time, our talent, our money? That's the question. And, um, and it's, a, it's a big question. And I wonder how, how, if we've ever really had to wrestle with it. Because kingdom concerns issues of allegiance and loyalty. I think so often we tend to think in terms of what do I need to do? I think one of the great tragedies of evangelicalism is they've reduced the Christian life to a set of rules and very specific things that you need to do and not do. But Jesus here is wanting us to think more in terms of kingdom loyalties, which actually takes it out of the realm of just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But it says, no, what matters is your heart and your allegiance and your loyalty. And all these things you do are connected to that. They flow out of that, right? It's not enough to just think that Jesus is great. Or as the Doobie Brothers saying, Jesus is just all right with me. It's never enough. It's never enough. You know, the people that actually met the real Jesus either fell down and worshiped him or wanted to kill him. So why is it that people just like us? (laughs) Why is it that people don't react that way to Christ's church. What does it mean for us in our day and age to publicly identify with Jesus? You know, the opposition to Jesus in our world is real and often has been a matter of life and death. Um, You know, I think Christians of the West are largely clueless about this. I know some of you have went on mission trips or, you know, the internet has made this, uh, I think people are more aware of the persecution of Christians. There's definitely been a movement in the last 20, 30 years to bring more attention to that sort of thing. But, you know, I've been reading a book that's really interesting about the ebbs and flows of Christianity in this world over the years. It's a fascinating book, one that I recommend. It's called The Lost History of Christianity, The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. Did you catch that last bit? And How It Died. Here's, Here's what's fascinating. Most people think that Christianity originated in Europe, and then eventually spread to like other places in the world, okay? That's not true at all. 
Uh, Philip Jenkins, who writes this book, puts it this way. He says, during the later Middle Ages, mass defections and persecutions across Asia and the Middle East uprooted what were then some of the world's most numerous Christian communities. As late as like the 13-1400s, some of the most numerous Christian communities were not in Europe. They were in the Middle East and they were in Asia. Right? Some of the most numerous Christian communities were uprooted. Churches that possessed a vibrant lineal and cultural connection to the earliest Jesus movements of Syria and Palestine. Repeatedly through its history, the church's tree has been pruned and cut back, often savagely. For most of its history, get this, Christianity was a tri-continental religion. For most of its history, with powerful representations in Europe, Africa, and Asia, and this was true into the 14th century. Christianity became predominantly European, not because this continent he's writing from Europe, had any obvious affinity for that faith, but by default, Europe was the continent where Christianity wasn't destroyed. Matters could have easily developed very differently. Iraq was, through the late Middle Ages, at least as much a cultural and spiritual heartland of Christianity as was France or Germany or even Ireland. I hate to disappoint you if you read that book about Ireland and how it kept Christianity alive. Because There was so much going on in other places in the world that Western Christians don't know anything about. But here's the point. It died in those places. There's a few scattered little remnant Christian groups in some of these places now. And so here's, you know, what's the point Jenkins is making in this book? There is no doubt that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But that does not mean that he's promised that the church in the West or America or the Middle East or Africa will prevail. This is the reality of this situation into which we live. This is the reality. And this is what's happened. So we mustn't be naive about the opposition to Christ and his kingdom. It's real. It's everywhere. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's more subtle. I remember years ago, talking with some students at Berkeley College Music. That was my alma mater. When I was in seminary, I went back there to speak to the Christian music little group that we had started. Actually, it wasn't a Christian music group. It was just a Christian fellowship, but it was a music school. And I remember I was talking about, I guess I was thinking what these students really need, because it's what I needed when I was in college, was to know that Christians should care about the arts and that you didn't just have to make Christian music to be justified in doing art. And that was very helpful for me to begin to discover that. So I thought I'd go back to my alma mater and tell some of these Christian students about this. And it was interesting, I had this girl from Indonesia come up to me afterwards. One of the cool things about Berkeley is it's half international students. Right, so there's people from all over the world, and um, this girl came up to me afterwards. She goes, "Well, I, you know, I've got a question because I'm really struggling with whether I should do Christian music or secular music." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I, I know how to answer your question." And then before I could answer, fortunately, she went on and said, "Because in my country, when I go back home, if I sing a Christian song and someone gets converted, I can be put to death." 
And I thought, oh, that's a different, that's a different question than whether or not, you know, should you pitch your, you know, your demo tape to Christian record companies or secular record companies. It's a whole different ball game. But that's the reality that so many Christians live in, right? Now, here, maybe the, the persecution can be more subtle, but it's nonetheless real. And if you begin to publicly identify with a bloody cross and an empty tomb and saying, this is what I believe and this is what matters and what all of history hangs upon, you will begin to feel it. You will begin to be thought of as, of course, you must be judgmental. And maybe you are. You should definitely check your heart on that. But you will be begin to be thought of as narrow-minded, mean-spirited, probably less than intelligent or thoughtful, gullible. And that stuff hurts. And I know that it's so easy to just sort of pull back. But what Jesus asks for is not great success in all of your evangelistic campaigns. What he asks for is faithfulness in identifying with him while he's absent, though you're surrounded by enemies. And I think the first question you have to say is, do you, re- do you realize that that's the state that you're in? I remember um, reading a book by William Willimon. He used to be the chaplain at Duke. And he tells a story about one time when he was still the chaplain there, meeting with a group of Lutheran students. Lutherans aren't real um, numerous in uh, North Carolina. I don't know if you know. They're really big in the Midwest, where I'm from. My family was all Lutheran in Iowa. And uh, he's meeting with these students, and he says, you know... Um, they're meeting on 9 o'clock, like on a Tuesday night, um, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And he says, you know, um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the university is out to kill Lutherans. But he says, don't take it personally. We treat Jews and Catholics the same way. The university wants to make you a lot less Lutheran, a lot less Christian than you were when you came here. He said, so you found out that what you need to do if you want to survive is you have to get together and sing Lutheran songs and eat Lutheran food and not sort of shrink back, but be involved in the practices that establish you and root you in who you really are. And he says, what's fascinating is, like your church back in Iowa, on Sunday morning, the parking lot is filled. And it seems like Lutherans run the world. And in small towns in the Midwest, they kind of do. But he says, that's not reality. And what you're learning here at Duke University, the way you're learning to survive as Lutherans is actually equipping you for the reality that you're going to face in your future. I don't know what you will face. I don't know what my children will face. But I know there is no guarantee that publicly identifying with Jesus might not cost you dearly before your life is over. There's no guarantee. Do you understand this? Has that sobered you yet? Are we publicly identified with the gospel of the bloody cross and the empty tomb? Bailey tells a story about ministering in Latvia. I had the privilege to go to Latvia and do Christian music, of all things, um, while the, the Berlin Wall came down while I was over there. It was a fascinating time to be there because at that point, the Soviet Union had sort of backed off a little bit, but you never knew when they were going to come 
back in again. They'd sort of let Poland begin to experiment with democracy, but they weren't really sure what they were going to do with the rest of the Baltics. And, and um, Bailey talks about going over there and being involved in interviewing candidates for the ministry. And there's one question that they ask the, in Latvia about candidates for the ministry, and it's this, were you baptized before communism fell or after? Because if you were baptized as a Christian before communism fell, well, that says a lot. If you were baptized after, you may be a Christian, but we're going to have a lot more questions about why you want to go to the ministry. But if you were baptized before communism fell, a lot of our questions have already been answered, right? And so I just think about what does it mean for us to be publicly identified? All right, let me move on to the ending here. So what happens in this parable? As the parable goes on, in spite of the opposition, the nobleman is made king. Awesome. Jesus here reiterating his promise to return as king, right? No matter how bleak things look, beware of taking stock of how God's cause is doing in the world by what you can see with your own eyes. It's an important lesson there. But now it's time to answer the king for what they've done with his money while he was away. The king is interested in whether they've been faithful while he's gone in the midst of enemies who hate him. And again, you know, following Jesus means identifying with him, putting all your eggs in one basket, as it will, with no backup plan. Now, the first two servants are commended, notice, for faithfulness, not success. And what do they get? They don't get a golden parachute. They don't get a cushy retirement. They get more responsibility. Isn't that fascinating? I heard about a church one time where the pastor was asked to preach a sermon on what the Bible had to say about retirement. And he said, all right, all right, all right. So he gets up and he says, okay. He opens his Bible. He says, today we're going to um, talk about what the Bible has to say about retirement. And he walked off. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say anything about retirement. The Bible says if you're faithful, God will give you more to do. Now, whether that seems like good news or bad news to you has everything to do with whose kingdom you're serving. It is. The way you react to that news that if you're faithful, you'll get more work to do, has everything to do with whether you're living for your kingdom and hoping that you're going to have a posh retirement someday or whether you're living for Jesus' kingdom and you want to see it expand and your greatest joy is to be about your master's work. Right? So Jesus puts the question this way. Whose kingdom are you living for? Whose kingdom are you longing to see come in fullness? The third servant fails to serve the master. Why? Because he has a distorted view of who the master is. And that is so huge to get from this parable. That the way you live is always connected to what you think of God. Always. Always. The way you relate to other people is always connected to what you think about God. And even more importantly, what you believe he thinks about you. If you think that God is really not very happy with you, it will mean that you will have to seek for affirmation and life-giving you know, encouragement from other people, the kind of encouragement that they can't possibly give you. 
But if you know that Jesus lived and died in your place, and when, he looks, when God looks at you, he sees you as his own son, the one who said, you know, well done, good and fair. If, if, if you know in your heart of hearts that that's what God thinks of you, it really takes the pressure off your other relationships. It doesn't mean that you don't, it doesn't bother you when people hate you, but you're not dependent upon their affirmation for life. The way you view God has everything to do with the way you live. This guy thinks that the master is hard. He thinks that the master is a criminal. You steal from people. You rob where you haven't sown. That's what he's basically saying. And what's interesting is the master doesn't challenge and say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. What he says is, okay, if you think I'm severe, why didn't you actually act like it? This is a lame excuse. If you thought I was severe, you should have at least put my money in the bank so you could give me interest. Now, why is that an interesting thing to say? The Jews were not allowed to charge interest. So what he's saying is, if you think I'm a crook, well, at least then you should have thought that I wouldn't care if you, you know, illegally put my money to work to earn me interest, because why would I care? But instead, you give me nothing. You give me nothing. Right? And so he says, I'm going to take this thing from you, and I'm going to give it to the guy that has 10. And everybody around goes, what? Not fair. This guy already has 10. But again, it's not about this belongs to this guy. The 10 don't belong to him. The 10 represent the responsibility and the, and the way that he's going to be able to be involved in the kingdom. We say it's unfair. Why do we say it's unfair? Because we believe we're owners rather than stewards. Whenever that heart cry, unfair, goes up in your heart, you have to pull back and say, now why do I think it's unfair? What do I think that I'm really owed anyway? But what about the ending of this parable? Slaughtering his enemies? I mean, that's, that's strong, isn't it? You know, you might think, well, Kevin, gosh, if I was you, I would have avoided a parable like this because there's enough people already that don't like God because of passages like this. But here's what's interesting. This parable doesn't show that the sentence actually gets carried out. And you might think, well, that's just a technicality. He tells people to slaughter the enemies. But here's the point. There are actually quite a few parables that leave the story without it being concluded. The prodigal son story does this. The older brother is invited to come into the party, but you never find out if he will. It puts the, the sort of the question back on the audience who's hearing it to say, well, what about us? Will we come into the party or, we will stand, or will we stand outside judging Jesus? The story about the guy you know, who pays all these workers that come at different times of the day, and he pays them all the same. And you remember at the end of that parable, the workers who've worked all day say, not fair. And it leaves you wondering, how will he respond to that? Um, the way Kenneth Bailey says it, and I think he's right, is the way the Bible says it is, the wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So this, this parable ends saying this is what the enemies of the king deserve. And like so many of these parables, it leaves us with this question, whose kingdom will we align ourselves with? 
Will we side with the true king or his enemies? But of course, as the story in Luke goes on, you find this astonishing revelation. The king we are called to align ourselves with is the king who dies in the place of his enemies. Right? As Augustus Toplady says in that hymn we sing sometimes, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. And he's coming again. So all of our hearts, all of our hearts, my heart, your heart, tell us that God is a hard man who treats us unfairly. But these accusations, brothers and sisters, dissolve at the foot of the cross. How can you look at the face of Jesus, suffering on a cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what you do, and think that God is a hard man who treats us unfairly? It's the only thing that can truly melt our hearts and melt the suspicion. The only thing is to see his love poured out on the bloody cross and embrace the hope of the empty tomb. See, it's one thing to just align yourself with a nobleman with his promise that I'm coming back again. But you know, brothers and sisters, we're not called just to believe the promise. We're to believe the promise that's been made and kept. We don't just have the promise. We have Jesus who lived, who died, and who's been resurrected and even now lives and intercedes, pleads his blood before all, uh, on the blood of his people, uh, before his father. We have this. And so when we think about aligning ourselves to the king, it's not just a noble man who hopes and is confident that he'll be made king. We are called to publicly identify with the one who is the king and who has demonstrated that fact by the fact that he's not still in a grave but he's resurrected, and he's coming again, right? He's ascended and is coming again. But that doesn't mean that the in-between time will be a cakewalk. And it's very important for the life of discipleship and perseverance that we understand the reality. Persecution is real. It's real. And we're called to publicly identify with Christ in spite of that. He doesn't, he doesn't ask that you be successful. He asks that we be faithful. And what I love is this verse in Hebrews. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not very faithful. I shrink back all the time. But the good news of the gospel that Jesus lived and died in the place of weak, faithless people is found in this verse in Hebrews where it says, Therefore, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He has every right to be ashamed of us. But because this king is the one who identifies with us at the cross and gives us the righteousness that he earned, he's not ashamed of us. Which is even a greater cause for us to identify with him. You know, I use that Spurgeon quote sometimes about how he says, when I thought that God was hard, I found it easy to sin against him. But when I realized what he did for me, that he loved me and died for me, that I smote my breast that I had ever called him a tyrant and sinned against him. It's one thing to identify yourself with the kingdom because you're afraid that he's going to cast you into the slaughter 
It's a whole other thing to identify with the king because you know he's identified with you and you know what it cost him. And that's what Jesus is painting a picture for us here. Let's pray together.